Thanks again to Dr. Ray Boucher, who's with us the previous two hours. I mentioned earlier uh, in the broadcast about an amazing thing that happened within the past 12 hours or so. The NASA OSIRIS-REx, OSIRIS-REx, the first U.S. mission to collect a sample from an asteroid, returned to Earth carrying materials from the asteroid Bennu. I mean, it's just astounding that this has happened, that they were able to pull this off. Uh, I can't wait to to find out what stuff they brought back, what it looks like. NASA did release a picture. I'm, I'm looking at it right now of a bunch of the scientists standing around, and they're wearing protective suits looking at this stuff. And, gosh, it just so happens we have a, a our next guest uh, works with NASA, is uh, the um, editor and creator of one of NASA's most popular science websites, the Astronomy Picture of the Day. He's here to talk about an amazing new book called Faster Than Light. But, heck, while he's here, we might as well ask him about this asteroid mission, too. My guest, uh, Dr. Robert J. Nemiroff, comes up next. Here we go. Dr. Robert Nemiroff is a professor of physics at Michigan Technological University. He's quite proud of his award as an exceptional grad student mentor. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania and became a fellow of the American Physical Society in 2022. Dr. Nemiroff is perhaps best known as the creator and editor for one of NASA's most popular science websites, the Astronomy Picture of the Day. In his spare time, he likes to play basketball, read and watch science fiction and think about concepts in science that are both very simple and very strange. And boy, has he accomplished that in this new book, Faster Than Light, How Your Shadow Can Do It, But You Can't. Robert, welcome back to Coast to Coast. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. You know, it's only been nine years you know, since you were a guest before, but it's long overdue. Um, I wanted, before we jump into the main topic and talk about your book, I wanted to get your take on the current events. I mentioned a minute ago about this NASA spacecraft that returned to Earth carrying material retrieved from an asteroid. I mean, an asteroid. It's sci-fi, becomes real science. I think would think it'd be a real proud moment for your friends and colleagues at NASA. Uh, yes. First of all, I'd like to say that I'm speaking as myself and not, as a, not on behalf of NASA. Oh, sure. I think it's just tremendously exciting. Uh, yes, this uh, uh, the Osiris Rex spacecraft uh, banged into a small um, asteroid a few um, football fields across and collected a sample and uh, has jettisoned in it. And then it just uh, just within the past 24 hours uh, came down in the Utah desert. And so it's been retrieved. It's chased by helicopters. You might say that an object from outer space crashed into Earth. And on the way, it was chased by helicopters and picked up and moved into a lab where we're going to study it. And that's exactly... What happened? But it's not an alien spacecraft. It's something we put up there, and it's really exciting because it's going to have. It has most probably um, dust from this asteroid that was uh, deposited there in the uh, early solar system, and so we might learn more about the early solar system. That's amazing. Well, it was alien to the asteroid, that's for sure. Uh, so, yeah. what, what? I mean, it's a dust. Are we going to have rocks? Is there anything else? What? The, what does this material look like? Just like dust from our planet? Well, again, I'm not an expert on this. Right. Um, this is not my 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 specialty is, is other areas of astrophysics. But uh, so, um, I think it's a small rock uh, dust. Yeah, it's uh, it's not anything really large. Um, Say so they, they impacted. Uh, it's like the spacecraft put out an arm and then banged into it into the surface and and loosened things that would come free. And then it, it uh, some of that fell into the spacecraft, a specific compartment in the spacecraft, and that closed up. And they think they have about uh, about you know a coffee cup size, maybe a little bit bigger than a coffee cup size of material. 
mostly ground, not ground up because it grounded up, but it was just uh, just dust and rocks. And so, uh, and so, yeah, and that that capsule has been returned, and uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, we're gonna see if there was a lot of organic material in the early solar system, and um, maybe uh, the seeds for life uh, were out there. Uh, but uh, also, asteroid Beno, I understand, is a, a bit of a hazard risk in that it comes very close to the Earth every now and then. Oh. And so far as we can tell, in the near future, that won't happen. So nobody alive today has to worry about asteroid Bennu uh, hitting us. And if it did hit us, it wouldn't destroy life on Earth. It's not as big as the asteroid that, that, that troubled the dinosaurs and killed off the dinosaurs, but it could cause some problems. And so... Um, so it's best to, to study it and understand it. Uh, so we, we, there's no real trajectory that we know that it will impact Earth. It will come very close. And if we're, we, the, the more distant uh, trajectory of the asteroid is not all that well known. Uh, so it could, in several thousand, maybe millions of years, impact the Earth. But we now have the ability to, NASA, humanity has the ability to impact asteroids like this with small objects and slightly change their trajectory. And so if we find that uh, with, with future analysis that it might be hitting the Earth, we might be able to slightly nudge it so that it misses. I, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot because this wasn't the topic you were here to talk about, but you're as close as I get to NASA tonight and happen to be on the show. So that's why I was asking mm-hmm. the question. I just find it just astounding that we can shoot a rocket out at an asteroid that's traveling, hurtling through space, a small asteroid, intercept it, get some stuff and come back. It's just astounding to me, you know. Yes, it is amazing. We live in a in a futuristic world in many ways, uh, and uh, we're we have more spacecraft out exploring almost everything in the solar system. Every major planet has been visited, and now we're visiting lots of asteroids and even bringing them little bits of them back uh, to study. So we just don't have to see them through telescopes. We can actually um, study what the, what it is they are. I want to ask you about uh, the James Webb Telescope uh, because, I mean, you deal with the images or the photos of the day. I'm sure some of those must come from James Webb. Uh, what uh, Can you address what that means to NASA, to the world, to science? Uh, what's happened that you've seen from the James Webb that's amazed even you? Okay. So uh, the James Webb is a, is a new big telescope. It's bigger than the Hubble Space Telescope, several times bigger. Uh, it co-orbits the sun with the Earth, and uh, it sees uh, some red light that we can see, but mostly into the infrared. So it sees red light more red than humans can see. And so that's good because a lot of things emit light, like you and me, we emit light in the infrared much more than we do in the optical visible light that we're used to. And so when you look, see into the infrared light, you can see into dust clouds, and you can see parts of the early universe that you couldn't see before. So what we're seeing is uh, images coming in of the inside of the nebula that we didn't know, uh, and we're seeing back to the early universe, uh, parts of the early universe that we hadn't seen before. So we're trying to, we're figuring out how it is better that galaxies formed and planets formed. And yeah, because of the size of the telescope, we're just getting some tremendously detailed images. So it's visually just amazing some of the things that came back in. One thing I was surprised about is they're taking is uh, that Webb is being pointed just at uh, objects inside our tele- inside our solar system. So there's a, a picture of uh, Jupiter that's tremendously uh, detailed that we were, we've been able to feature, and you can see things in the infrared. You can see actually 
Saturn is famous for having rings. Well, Jupiter has some rings, and they glow a bit in the infrared. So we can see them, and we can see aurora on Jupiter, and we can see the interaction between uh, Jupiter's aurora and its uh, moon Io. Uh, so we're able to, to study that, the interaction of that in, in, in greater detail. But Webb is just, uh, just doing great things. It's bigger than Hubble. Uh, Hubble complements it in some way. Hubble can see into the ultraviolet, which is light more blue than we can see. And there are advantages to being able to see into the ultraviolet. And Hubble sees the entire uh, visual range, too. Um, so the two telescopes actually can complement each other in many ways. But uh, we've never had a telescope like Webb before, so it's, uh, it's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, do you get a feed of the photos that come out of Webb, or you get your pick of those things for your, uh, for your feature, the astronomy photo of the day? Well, we, we don't have special inside information from that. So we see the, the images that everyone else, uh, that NASA releases. NASA is a very transparent organization. They, when they take images of things, usually within a day or two, it's released into the public. So uh, we, we see that, too. But one thing we do on the astronomy picture today is since we're uh, astrophysicists, we can explain it and we can put it in context in a very short explanation that's hyperlinked into the web. So we can pick out some of the images that are most visually stimulating. We can pick out some of the images that are, have the most science in them. And we can say, tell people very clearly in very, in very short text uh, what it is they're seeing and why it's important. Look at the kind of information that comes your way every day. Uh, it, it, it would seem so overwhelming to me. And I, and I say it in the context of, you know, web, it sees so far out if you, if you, if you target something way far out. And it's like the march of science, the march of knowledge is a, a lesson in increasing humility for we humans, how small we become, the more we uh, learn about how big everything else is. Agree? Yeah. Uh, humanity keeps passing, as technology increases, humanity is able to do more and more. And sometimes you live in a part of humanity where things didn't really progress very much. So you pretty much study what's been known. But we live in a time when there's spacecraft that go out into the solar system and we can build telescopes that can see far out of the universe. So we are just seeing, we're like open field running. There's all this great stuff that's coming in. We live in a very fortunate era, a golden age of exploring the universe and seeing the universe. Uh, more than a, a hundred years ago or so, we thought our galaxy was pretty much the whole universe. Uh, but now we know that all those little spiral nebula and all these other things are actually galaxies like our own. And we can see the outer universe expanding. And so even just in the past hundred years, there's been revolution of, after revolution of humanity's understanding of what universe is. And just seeing all these amazing things out there. And the latest chapters of that, well, there was Hubble, and now there's Webb. And, but there's also little, other little telescopes that fill in little niches that are important, too. And little spacecraft that go out, like, like OSIRIS-REx, and, uh, and capture little bits and coming back. And, and you know, 100 years ago, this would be almost inconceivable. Actually, yeah. the, the, some of the science fiction writers of the day actually sort of saw some of the uh, foresaw that some of this might happen, but uh, the average person on the street uh, would have no reason to think that, and now it's come true. You know, a century or more ago, uh, there were people, uh, scientists on Earth, who thought there was life on Mars. They saw the canals and figured they had been engineered. There, And then more recently, uh, people figured our solar system must be dead. There's no chance any life exists. The more we learn about our own solar system, the more possibilities of some kind of life uh, might be out there, these frozen moons and, and, uh, and maybe 
maybe ancient microscopic life still on Mars or uh, I mean, it's a really exciting time, uh, even in our own little neck of the galactic woods here. Yes, it could be. Uh, the next major milestone for humanity is discovering uh, extraterrestrial life. And I know a lot of people uh, like like me think that it must be out there somewhere. And the big question is, how will we discover it? And so I was actually involved in organizing a debate a few years ago as to whether we would probably discover extraterrestrial life through what we call biosignatures, meaning that we would find something on Mars, something that landed on Mars would find something that would indicate that life existed there in the past. And, uh, or we could find it through technosignatures. We would get uh, some radio broadcasts uh, that would obviously indicate that there was extraterrestrial life out there. And, uh, or we would see some kind of technology out there that we obviously didn't develop. And so there's sort of a battle in the community now between how is, how is it that we will discover extraterrestrial life? Will it be through biosignatures or will it be through technosignatures? But right now, every year that goes by, we keep expanding the frontier further and further, and yet we have no clear evidence of extraterrestrial life that is confirmed yet. And so it's exciting to, it's like sitting on the edge of the chair, your chair wondering which it will be. And we keep with Webb Telescope, Webb is looking at the extra exoplanets, planets orbiting other solar systems. We're looking for biomarkers in those exoplanets. Maybe there's something that clearly tells us there's life in on some of these exoplanets uh, or, um, or on Mars, maybe something will be found that is uh, a clear signature of that. Or we're, we're also listening in more and better ways into the solar system with, with, with radio telescopes and uh, trying to listen in different places. And so far, we haven't heard anything that's clearly and reproducibly uh, indicate, indicative of extraterrestrial life. But it is, it is possibly the next major leap of mankind to understand that we're not alone in the universe. Yeah, I, it's a very exciting possibility. I hope it happens in my lifetime. And I promise uh, we're not going to dwell too much longer on this. I want to jump into talking about your book and the ideas therein. But just one last question on this. I mean... You know, in my line of work, we cover a lot of really what you'd call pretty weird stuff, UFOs and things like that on this program. I'm not going to sort of pin you into into that area, but could you no, share... No, coast to coast, you're, you're... <laughs> Could you share with me your thoughts on what happens, how humans, our civilization, reacts to the discovery and confirmation of ET life, even microscopic ancient life on Mars that's no longer there? How does that change things? Why would that be such a major development? Wow. So <laughs> that's a really great question. I haven't really put too much thought into it. It's like you, you kept trying to, to do something, and then when you finally do something, it's like, oh, now what? Now what? Um, <laughs> I think humanity would, would take it in stride. I think uh, a lot of humanity uh, does believe that we're not alone in the universe, and uh, there would be a lot of curiosity as to what is it that's out there. Okay, now they found it. What else is it that's like that? What what so it was discovered, let's say in bio let's say a biosignature was discovered on a moon of Jupiter. What is that? Are there fish down there? Um are there frozen fish orbiting um Jupiter that we just missed because they're so small? Uh how do these things live? How do they see? Uh, are we related? Are they DNA like we're DNA? Are they are they based on something else? Uh 
is there and can you extrapolate on that? Do you expect is this a, just a solar system thing? Is this solar system just lucky to have lucky to have a DNA based life, or is this something that uh, you can see out in the universe? Uh, for instance, if you were to detect DNA based life out of an exoplanet uh, out of our solar system, that would indicate that the DNA is not so unusual. This way of reproducing ourselves is not so unusual, or maybe it's something completely different. And I think it would just create in humanity a lot of curiosity as to how this happened and, and what, what are the future implications. Is there lots of life out there? Is there other intelligent life out there? I think it would be like going through a door of understanding and finding yourself in a new space and just wondering what it is that's in this space. Yeah, it'd be exciting just to figure out if panspermia is real, that uh, life was uh, came to Earth from somewhere else on an asteroid, on a comet, something like that. And and if so, whether there's a common denominator between life here and life out there. Yes, exactly. These are questions that would be asked in, in, in greater detail than ever before. Were we, and hopefully when we, discover uh, extraterrestrial life? Um, about your book. So, look, uh, you know, a lot of people in my line of work, journalists, they chose this profession because it allowed us to uh, avoid math in part, you know, because math is hard. If you had been teaching physics when I was back in college, I might have paid closer attention because the the book is so much fun. There so many of the subjects that you cover in this uh, in this book, Faster Than Light, How Your Shadow Can Do It, But You Can't. Uh, you know, it's it goes over the heads of regular lunkheads like me, but you seem to have set out to make it fun for physics students and clear enough for the general public to follow along. Was that the goal? Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a bunch of interesting uh, concepts. So what I tried to do is I, there's a little bit of math, but I tried to stay away from the math. <laughs> As I say there, the, you know, a lot of science progresses with data. So a lot of the information is brought in, like the, uh, the, the sample from a Cyrus Rex is going to be analyzed and we'll have all this data. A lot of uh, things. So people, uh, humanity has created math to help us explain the data in some way. Here, here we're going to fit this data, and here's the relationship between the data. But at a higher level, in my view, higher than math is concepts. And everybody can understand some of the really cool concepts. So in my book, I try to hand wave across the math and acknowledge the data, but not really get into much of the data at all, but try to focus on the really cool concepts that are behind um, the, the, the greatest speed limit there is, which is the speed of light, because the speed of light is just a tremendously interesting speed limit, and it creates things like time dilation and uh, time travel certainly into the future and strange little paradoxes that come up, but it's not impossible to understand without math and data and without math in particular. Uh, Re- so I tried Retro to causality. Right- We're going to jump into retro causality. We're talking with Dr. Robert Nemeroff about Faster Than Light, fascinating book. We're going to jump right into the heart of it when we come back. Uh, Faster Than Light, How Your Shadow Can Do It But You Can't is the most hilarious science book I've ever read. Uh, Robert J. Nemeroff is the, the guy who wrote it and Man, it was a fun read. Uh, there's some, to, just to give you a context, on the back cover, there are some historical blurbs written for the book. Uh, this one comes from Aristotle in 330 B.C. Since light has infinite speed, this book is useless. <laughs> or a quote from you, Everett III, in some versions of the universe, I do not supply a blurb for this book. If you knew who you Everett was and what he uh, 
propose, then you'd get the humor of that. When we come back, back we're going to jump into the heart of the book. Uh, is some is anything able to travel faster than the speed of light? We're going to find out. Robert Nemiroff, uh, Faster Than Light, How Your Shadow Can Do It But You Can't is really good. Uh, is this uh, material taken from lectures that you've given or you've pulled it together over the years? Well, I've always had an interest. For many, many years, I had an interest. And I've actually published on some of the strange aspects in, in science journals, um, some of the strange aspects that uh, shadows and laser spots can do when they when they go faster than light, because uh, even the, the physics community, once they see the logic, they don't disagree with it, but uh, but they're unaware of it. So if you were to go and speak to uh, someone you know that's versed in physics, they would say, oh, no, no, that can't happen. But once you explain to them the logic of how it does happen, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool. And it is. It's, it's really strange. It's just one of these untold stories out there that uh, there's this whole universe of things that happen faster than light that that we don't know. For instance, uh, when you turn on a room light, the the room at first the room is completely dark, and after a second, for sure, the room's completely illuminated. Well, the boundary between dark and light moves across the wall faster than light. <laughs> so if you could see at those speeds, you would be able to see a much different universe. You would see lots of things moving faster than light all the time. And so one of the reasons why we can't do it why we can't see it is because our brains and minds are so slow, that was me, uh, <laughs> that, um, that it just doesn't come through. But now with modern technology, we can have time, rapid time-lapse photography and see these things. You drop a lot of really cool historical facts in the book about how, you know, the, uh, the understanding of the speed of light, how it developed and changed over the centuries. Maybe let's start there. I mean, uh, tell us a little bit about and what you cover in the book about uh, the first folks to try to measure the speed of light. Is it Galileo or be- even before well, that? People have been been speculating about the speed of light since, uh, since uh, in most of recorded history. Um, for instance, um, as you noted, uh, let's see, Aristotle and Euclid back in, in the you know, B.C. times, uh, they sort of thought that um, they sort of thought that what happens is light doesn't come from an object from a star or from a light to you. Light goes from your eye to the object you're seeing, and for most of human history, that's the way humans thought it was. Uh, every now and then, someone would say, "No, wait, I think it's the other way," but but that was not what most people believed. And it was only around a thousand A.D. that uh, that that it was more and more realized that, no, 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 that, that's not the way it is. Light actually comes, goes from something and comes to us. And that's when, so back in the, the B.C. times, people thought, well, the speed of light must be uh, infinite because when your eyes are closed, you don't see something. And then when you open your eyes, then light goes out from your eyes and you can see things, even stars that are far away. Therefore, the speed of light must be effectively infinite. But once people realized that, light was coming from other things into their eye, then people realized, well, maybe it's not infinite. Maybe it's, it's got some speed. But for many years, they just couldn't measure it. It was so fast. As I like to tell my students, uh, there's really only three numbers in, in conceptual astrophysics. One is infinity, which means it was really too, too fast or too big to measure. One is one, means that we measured it, it's one of those. And the other is zero. Uh, the other third, the third number in astrophysics is zero because it means it's too small to measure. It might be there. We don't know what size, but it's effectively zero. 
So for a lot of human history, the speed of light was infinite because it was just too fast to measure. We, we couldn't do it. So people like Galileo, they, they tried to do it. They would go to mountaintops or hilltops, and then someone else would be in another hilltop, and they had lanterns, and they had um, black um, things they could, you know, they could put over the lanterns. And so they would make deals. You, know, you and your, your hilltop, when you see me uncover my lantern, you uncover your lantern. And I'll count the amount of seconds it takes before I can see your lantern. And so Galileo did this, and other people did this, and they found out, well, it's about a second. No, it's about two seconds. No, it's about half a second. And they realized they weren't getting a consistent answer. And Galileo realized that, no, I just don't believe it. If it was infinitely fast, what we're really measuring is how long it takes to uncover the lanterns. We're not really measuring anything to do with the speed of light. So Many efforts to measure the super-fast speed of light just failed until suddenly in the 1600s, someone who was not famous just happened to be doing something that some people didn't, you know, didn't think would be all that interesting, and they got a result that they didn't understand. But that result was the door. That door was, that we went through is the finite speed of light, and that person was Ole Romer. And Ole Romer, what they were doing is they were just watching the moons of Jupiter. And the moons of Jupiter, particularly Io, would go behind Jupiter, go in front of Jupiter. And Romer noticed there was just something odd about the timing of these eclipses. And the eclipses would take longer in some circumstances and shorter in other circumstances. And it just didn't seem to make sense. And so meanwhile, uh, on the other people on the next hill trying to uncover lanterns, um, but uh, Romer was saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, can you understand this? And the answer, it turns out, that Ole Rummer was actually the first to discover the finite speed of light and to measure it within a, a small fraction, of the, not super accurately, but relatively accurately, uh, like, we, like we know it today. So the discovery was just a bit of a surprise, and it advanced human, human knowledge in a great way by just a sort of a serendipitous result. Uh, you write a couple of different places in the book about there being more than one speed of light. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so now we know, in modern science, we know a lot about the speed of light. And we know that the speed of light in objects, so when you look through water, the speed of light in water is not the same as the speed of light in air or in vacuum. Speed of light through air and vacuum are actually very similar. It's very small fractional percentage difference between those. But in water, it's like a third slower. Uh, but there's different even kinds of light. We now know things about what, the way light works, and there's phases, and there's, there's something called the group velocity. The group velocity is more or less how long it would take light to go from you to a mirror to bounce back. If you measure that speed, which we can now do with great accuracy, you're measuring the group velocity of light. There's also things called the phase velocity, whereas if you measure how much light is deflected, uh, that's, um, but that's not all that important, really. It's important for understanding the details of physics and how things work. But in terms of the conceptual speed of light, we now know that you know, the speed of light in glass is different than the speed of light in water. And the speed of light in water is different than the speed of light in air, which is slightly different than the speed of light in vacuum. And the fastest that we know that anything can pass you by is the speed of light in vacuum. And so we call that the speed of light. But it really means fastest speed that we know of in terms of something that has energy and mass can go. I understand the speed of light is not just an exercise in and of itself. I mean, it helps to understand uh, the, the much bigger picture of the universe we live in and, and the nature of reality, right? 
Yeah, so uh, light is just a fundamental thing. It's one of the um, – it used to dominate the universe. The, the photons that, that make up light used to have the most energy in the universe. But now the universe has evolved. The, the light has, has become less comparatively energetic, whereas uh, mass and now something called dark energy have not diluted like light. So now light is – there's lots of – there's like billions of uh, pieces of photons for every atom in, that we know of. But still, the amount of energy in light is, is down, has gone down down a lot, and so um, now light is more is, isn't most useful for its mass and its energy. Doesn't it, the energy it has is most useful for what it can tell us because it's across the universe from far away. And so when we look at it near and far, we we can try to decode what it is. Light was created someplace. Light was reflected from someplace. Light was emitted from someplace, and we. We, we piece together the universe from the light we see, pretty much. Um, you have some fun exercises in the book. I, there's no way we can cover all of them, but one of them early in the book is an aside where you, you know, the title is Nothing Can Go Faster Than Light, which is, I think, probably the general assumption that most of us non-scientists uh, would suggest. But you say that if you were to head into the local university and ask a random physics student, if anything, or if shadows could go faster than light, you're probably going to get an answer, no, nothing could go faster than light. But they'd be wrong, right? Yes, they would be wrong. <laughs> so um, I, it's it's uh, an amazing thing. I've given talks, uh, and I've had, you know, good physicists in the audience object, saying, oh, no, that can't happen. And then when I try to detail it, they don't even want to let me continue. So we get into an awkward part <laughs> where I say, oh, no. But then... I speak at another university that has uh, that has just as prestigious scientists, and they love it. They say, "Oh yeah, this is really interesting. This is really great." So yeah, if you were to go into the experiment, um, you might find people there who would seem to disagree with this. But unless what you can do is you can tell them to, to look up my articles, not only my articles, there are other articles, and then to read this book, and it really it makes it very clear. Uh, and it's been measured in the lab, too, that shadows and laser spots and illumination fronts, like like when you turn on a light in a room, they, they all can move, and they do move uh, faster than light. And you say you wrote that you've submitted papers to recognize physics journals and had them rejected because the editors say, oh, no, there's no way this paper is flawed because nothing can go faster than light. They're wrong. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that has happened, too. So what happens is we we have editors that know – uh, so when you send in, you, you do some research, you send it into a journal. So the journal, uh, you send it in to the editor, signs an editor. Then the editor has what's called referees. You can picture there are scientists that sit around with stripes on them, and they advise the editor as to whether this piece of science writing that was submitted to the journal should be published or not. Uh, many things submitted to journals are not published because the, the, the editor, on advice of the referee, usually says, oh, no. So um, we now know for some journals, some editors are, are clued in and they understand what we're doing and that this is correct. But if we get the wrong editor and the wrong editor submits it to the wrong referee, then we just get back a rote rejection, which we know to try to push past. We try to find, we ask that editor to send to a different referee or we ask that, that another editor uh, take over. And so uh, since we are able to publish our stuff, that is a, a successful tactic, but you're right. We've gotten just, you know, back an immediate thing saying, oh, no, this can't be right, because someone hasn't thought it through. They just they remember some 
you know, some adage that says nothing can go faster than light, but that, which is nothing can pack, with mass can pack you faster than light. So far as we know, we don't have any examples of that. But shadows can go, laser spots can go, things can go, and these things can be very, very interesting and tell us things about the universe that we didn't know before. Yeah, you have one experiment in in the book that uh, where you point a laser pointer at the moon, and it can go, you can whip it around, and it could go faster than the speed of light. Correct? Yeah. So, yeah. so one of my favorite uh, favorite thought experiments, and there's a lot of conceptual thought experiments in the book, is let's say you're you're on you're here on Earth, and let's say there was this big dome out one light year away. So if it's one light year away, it takes light a whole year to get there. So now you have your laser pointer. Uh, so you take your laser pointer and you point it at one spot in the dome. And even though you pointed it there, it's going to take a year for light to get there. But then in one second, you take your laser pointer and you shift it around to 180 degrees around to the, uh, to the other side of the dome. So after a year uh, that takes light to get there, the laser spot will cross, will go all the way around that dome uh, in, in a second. But that dome has... Uh, has a rate as a circumference greater than a light year. So that spot is moving greater than a light year in a second, which means the spot has a superluminal speed. Now there's no information being created on the dome that's moving on the dome faster than light. The laser spot is the superposition of unrelated photons that are hitting at different places. And so that is what is appearing, appearing to move uh, faster than light. But yes, these things, you know, we don't have a dome out at one light year. But these thought experiments are, are very clear demonstrations that uh, things, laser spots can move. So if you take your laser spot, maybe we don't have a dome a uh, light year away. What we do have is things that are closer. So the moon, if you just try your local wall and you take your laser pointer and you sweep it around the wall, you can't move your arm fast enough to make it go faster than light, unfortunately. But the moon is far enough away that if you take your laser pointer and you sweep it past the moon at a reasonable speed, not too fast, that that laser spot, if you could see it, would move faster than light across the moon. You have a, a chapter that deals with how to make a magnetic field move faster than light. So what is there a simple answer to that, a simple explanation that we would understand? Well, yeah, that's a tough one. Because, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. but the magnetic field lines are actually not something you can grab onto. They're conceptual lines of, uh, of, uh, of that have something to do with magnetism. So, yeah, so we draw them in, and then when the magnetism changes, you turn a magnet or something like that. Yeah, these magnetic field lines can, can move faster than light. That, that's very clear. But uh, it's not that easy to explain. So I did get, go to some effort in the book to do it. But I don't know if that would work here in the in the coast to coast format okay. very well. Uh, you know, you do touch on here and there um, the differences uh, between relativity and quantum mechanics. And try as I might to get my head around it, I just can't do it. But it seems to be a lot of what quantum mechanics concludes to be real and true is at odds with uh, what we think of as relativity. I don't know how they coexist, but they do, right? Yeah, so they are not in – we don't always know how they interact, and we're sometimes surprised, but there is – quantum mechanics does not contradict special relativity. In fact, there's a, there's a, uh, con, there are types of quantum mechanics, uh, quantum electrodynamics and, and things like that that uh, incorporate special relativity into them. 
the classic quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation it's called, uh, that can be brought into conflict with uh, the concept of special relativity. But, but physicists do know that special relativity is right and that it does fit into quantum mechanics. But that doesn't mean there's, there's some really strange quantum mechanics experiments out there that it appears that information is being transferred faster than light, but it is not. When it is when it's looked at in very detail, it's just the appearance that it is. It's not really going faster than light. And how that is is just absolutely fascinating. How it seems like something on one side and something far away, they seem like they know about each other, but they're not communicating. And so if you look at the details of it, which I try to explain in some of the chapters in my book, you can see that there's no real communication going on there. There's correlation, which we don't understand why there's correlation, but there's no communication. Uh, there's some fun stuff in here that we're going to jump into in the next segment after this break. Uh, retro causality. Can the, uh, can the future influence the present, for example? Can you send information back from the, from the future to the past? Uh, a lot of fun stuff in the book that we're going to be jumping into in the next segment. Stick around uh, with my guest, Dr. Robert Nemiroff. Faster than light, how your shadow can do it, but you can't. Uh, lots more to come here on Coast to Coast. 